Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Well, good morning, and, and I'm so delighted to see so many folks uh, being here today. I count 12 or 11 people online, and uh, about that many people in the Zendo. So this is a delight for me to be able to, to share this morning with you all. And I wanna say thank you to Kim for officiating this morning and to uh, Anne for being the timekeeper and uh, Sandra for being the monitor, to Nancy for being the online monitor, that's so important. She's straightened me out on a couple of mistakes I made already. And, um, and to Lori for offering practice discussion this morning. Thank you very much. And, uh, I wanna, I, I have a talk, my title that I wrote for myself is Concentrating and Making Friends with Hindrances. And um, I wanna say that uh, last week, last Wednesday, I led the evening program, the Wednesday evening program. And that's, it's part of a, a series. Um, and it, it's the second Wednesday of the month and it focuses every month on concentration. And if you have never taken part in the Wednesday evening program, I wanna suggest that it'd be a good thing to do either remotely or in person. Um, I'm sorry, it's all, it's all online right now. Uh, but um, there's a opportunity. The, um, the first uh, week is uh, focuses on compassion and loving kindness. The second week is concentration. The third week, Gaia meditation, that is connections with all of nature and all of life. And the fourth week, it's koan practice. And if there's a fifth Wednesday of the month, it's a focus on uh, Zen and the body and many different aspects of that. Uh, recent leaders of the Wednesday evening programs have included John Eric Steinbommer, Robin Bradford, Eric Williamson, Jessica Steinbommer, uh, Stephanie Seiler, Kim Mosley, Ann Lipscomb, and I apologize to anybody who I've left out here. Uh, but these are all gifted teachers who bring a different flavor to presentations of the Dharma. And all of them, like me, are among the homegrown um, emerging teachers from within our Sangha. Uh, and Amanda Qureshi, I'll say, who goes by Q, has been the online monitor for that, a very uh, important role in that ongoing effort. Um, if you wanna support the development of these uh, people and their service to the Sangha, Taking part in the evening program on Wednesdays is a great way to do it. It starts at 7 p.m. Central Time. It lasts about an hour and a half. And uh, I, it's, it's always interesting and, and engaging. So as I said last week, uh, I, I, I led uh, on Wednesday and the topic was concentration. 
And I'm sure many of the folks here uh, have no problem distinguishing between concentration and mindfulness, but I, I find that they blur together in my mind a lot. So last week I looked up the terms and I found some definitions. Uh, concentration is defined as mental focus on a single object uh, or a way of looking at experience with a narrow focus, uh, kind of like using a zoom lens or by analogy, like walking around in a dark room with just a small pen light and uh, with, a, with a pen light to guide your steps so that you don't bump into the furniture and you can only see what is illuminated by this small light. Even more so, I'd say, as practiced for thousands of years, it is focused on a single point. It might be a word, like a mantra, uh, an image, a sound, a relationship with a spiritual guide or a mentor. Uh, the Pali word for concentration is samadhi, which has a very particular sense also. Uh, mindfulness, by comparison, is more like a stroll in the daylight uh, where you can appreciate whatever you encounter although stroll is not quite the right word either, since it's a pur purposeful, directed state of being open to experience as it arises. And there's a sense also of being aware of present moment experience without judgment. Although the focus is broader, mindfulness also requires concentration, obviously. And this is part of why I, they blur together for me. I see an analogy with the basics of our sense of vision. There's a spot in the center of our field of view where we can focus on things in detail. And just outside that central point, there's the fuzzier kind of peripheral vision that we have, which is very, we don't often pay attention to it, except if something moves in the periphery of our field of view, it grabs our attention right away. And so it, it occurs to me that we are constantly scanning back and forth between these central focuses and these peripheral areas to see what's, what really matters, to see if uh, what we have to pay attention to and what we can ignore. <clears throat> so it's like a dance of focus and distraction. And both mindfulness and concentration as modes of meditation require the mental effort of pulling oneself back from distraction. I recently heard a wonderful metaphor from a Rinzai Zen teacher here in Albuquerque named uh, Susan Linnell. She goes by the Dharma name, Mio On. Mio On said, as you sit, imagine that you are on the bank of a beautiful quiet river Everything is peaceful and serene. Then floating down the river comes a boat full of people. Some of them are having a party. Some are fighting and some are very sad. She went on, watch the boat, see what's there, but don't get on the boat. That's a very appealing description to me. Not getting on the boat seems simple, but if you're like me, simple doesn't mean easy. It takes work not to jump on the boat and even more work to swim back to shore when I realize that I'm already cracking a beer 
or getting in an argument or planning Thanksgiving dinner with somebody on the phone in my, you know, among my imaginary companions there. I understand that our brains crave stimulation and novelty, which we are denying ourselves by sitting in meditation and denying ourselves by not getting on the boat when it shows up. When we do get on the boat, our brains give themselves rewards in dopamine and epinephrine and other brain chemicals. And conversely, pulling ourselves back to shore, sitting quietly, uh, turns off that reward. So it requires an effort and the effort has a sense of discomfort to it. And I, this is something that I talked about in my last uh, Dharma talk when I was uh, describing how in experiments people have chosen to give themselves electric shocks rather than sit quietly with their own thoughts in, in, in recent experiments. So um, to continue, concentration in the Theravadan tradition that goes back to the Buddhist original teachings originally had four levels called jhanas or absorptions. Uh, that number was later expanded, uh, sometimes very greatly. Uh, the, each of the jhanas was a step along the path of relinquishing the sense of self as separate and apart from the unfolding consciousness, uh, unfolding cosmos, sorry, a step toward an embodied understanding of dependent co-arising while leaving the world of mental projections and, and sensory apparatus behind. The Buddha taught mindfulness of the breath as a concentration practice for beginners and as a practice that in and of itself could progress through all the jhanas to nirvana. There's a famous story that late in his teaching career, he went off into the forest, uh, leaving his large group of disciples behind. And when he came back, followers asked him what he'd been doing, and he said that he had been practicing mindfulness of breath. Uh, his followers said, well, isn't that a beginner practice? Why were you doing that? And he said, because it's a beautiful way to live. Um, as a side note, as you probably already know, the word jhana was translated into Chinese as chan, and the word chan was translated into Japanese as zen. So these are closely related ideas and closely related practices. Um, in Zen, at least in the Soto Zen tradition that we follow, there's less focus on effortful, single focus concentration or single pointed concentration uh, with mantras or images and more focus on mindfulness of present moment experience as it unfolds. To me, this emphasis is captured in Dogen's phrase from Genjo Koan, to carry yourself forward and experience, sorry. Uh, to carry yourself forward and experience myriad things is delusion. That myriad things come forward and experience themselves is awakening. I hear that as a kind of warning. Don't fall into the delusion of thinking that what matters in concentration is something that you, as a separate being, are doing. You're not swimming laps, 
but recognizing that you're immersed in the ocean. Right concentration is the last element in the Buddha's Eightfold Path. Uh, right understanding, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and finally, right concentration. Right concentration or samadhi is a variety of single-pointed concentration, as I've said, but one can concentrate with intense single-pointedness on lots of things, anger, sexual thoughts, revenge, anxiety. That's not right concentration. The uh, Theravadan teacher Bhikkhu Bodhi writes, samadhi is exclusively wholesome one-pointedness, the concentration in a wholesome state of mind. Even then, its range is still narrower. It does not signify every form of wholesome concentration, but only the intensified concentration that results from a deliberate attempt to raise the mind to a higher, more purified level of awareness. Okay. I have questions about this, and it has to do with what I experience and what I've learned from my reading about physiology and psychology and so on. My question begins, how is concentration on a higher level of awareness ever even possible? How is any meditative practice possible really? And how can it really lead to awakening and freedom? Humans are an evolved species and we can see that in the structure of our brains. We have what uh, is called a limbic system or a limbic or, or, a, or a lizard brain or even a fish brain, uh, the brainstem, the cerebellum, the amygdala and hippocampus and all these other parts in our brain that seem to act, they have many different functions, but they seem to act um, a lot very quickly. Uh, and to direct a lot of our activities much faster than we can think about them with our discursive mind. Uh, we have our, a mammalian evolved part of our brain, which scans for our connections with, the, with other people, with, our, with the other members of our species. And, um, you know, without these parts of our brains, our brains, our, our, our lungs wouldn't work, our hearts would not keep pumping while we are asleep, uh, all these other things. Uh, they also connect to all our sensory apparatus, our eyes, our ears, our nose, our tongue, everything that has nerve endings to provide information about the outside world. Uh, and these parts of our brains color our experience nothing that we that that makes it into the discursive parts of our minds comes in without already being colored by what the buddha described as feeling or feeling tone uh, the sense that something is good or bad so it's it takes work to be able to parse that out to realize that there's a feeling tone that is separate from uh, that, that is a, a kind of reactivity that is separate from what we are actually experiencing in our relationship with the world. The, the other thing is that these inner parts of our brain 
um, I'm sorry, and there's a, there's a, you know, these mammalian parts of our brain are also asking the questions that Flint has phrased this way. All, they're constantly posing these questions. Are you there? Do you see me? Do you choose me? If we are in anxiety about those, if we are in uncertainty about those, that produces a, another kind of a mental pain. So it's, it's what we are living with all the time because we're constantly scanning to reinforce our sense that we are connected with others and that we, and that we are separate. Um, so it's, it's kind of painful. So I would revise Mio On's metaphor about the riverbank and the boat. You're sitting on the riverbank being quiet and your brain is scanning to see if there's a crocodile coming up the bank towards you or, or if there's a tiger in the woods behind you or a wasp in somewhere uh, just outside the edge of your peripheral vision that may land on your nose. Or is there a fire or a snake or that tickling on your foot? Is it nothing? Or is it maybe fire ants that are going to start biting you? There's a, you just my, my point being that your sensory apparatus is on the alert for disaster all the time. And your mammalian brain is on the alert for rejection and harm or, or hurt all the time. So these are things that are simply built into our bodies and that affect our minds every moment. So that's why I say, how is it possible for us to do what the Buddha advises? We know it is possible because everybody who's connected here has been doing it this morning, sitting still, meeting these thoughts, meeting these expectations, meeting these feeling tones with enough self-compassion and equanimity to at least let them go by for the moment like not getting on the boat, you know? So my, my point finally is this, if you've had even a moment, single moment of unclouded mindfulness today, you should offer yourself some gratitude and congratulations and yourself and to the whole system for making this both difficult and possible at the same time. You're up against a lot of hindrances and obstacles, and they are just part of our life, just as the opportunity to awaken is part of our life. So uh, I meant to mention at the beginning of my talk that I wanted to ask you in a part to uh, join me in participating in a little experiment at the end. I, I left that out. But now I want to talk to you about a brief experiment. If you are, if you've participated at Appamata at any amount of time or for any amount of time, uh, you are probably familiar with some of the language of a, a type of psychotherapy called internal family systems therapy. And this um, this is a, a, a type of therapy that has as its basic idea that we're not just we don't have just one mind we have many minds and some of them have to do with uh, young parts of ourselves that uh, believe certain things that may or may not be accurate in the present moment 
in our adult lives. They may be fearful, they may be angry, they may be stuck. And um, I want to say that several years ago, I was participating in a, uh, an intensive at Appamata, along with Peg, and I had just given a talk about hindrances and about hearts and about the, the appalling resilience and persistence of early conditioning that I found in my own life. That even after years of sitting therapy, that I, that I still was being yanked around by early conditioning and, how, and just how difficult that was for me. And uh, afterwards, I had a conversation that was one of those life-changing conversations that I've had at Alpamata. And it was with uh, Krzysztof Piekarski, one of the Zen mentors at Alpamata. And he said simply that that probably wasn't very helpful to keep thinking of these parts in this negative way, and that it might be better for me to meet these parts with a greater sense of loving kindness and compassion and to, and to really integrate the fact that they were doing the best that they could, just as the people around me are doing the best they can, and that I could hold them in that knowledge. And he said that this uh, approach maps onto the Zen saying, the obstacle is the path. So, you know, there I was, I'd been practicing for many years, but this one conversation had a real effect on me being able to integrate this. And I think about it often. So I, I, I want to give an example of something and ask you when I ring the bell to participate in an experiment with seeing if you can uh, recognize something along the same line that occurs to you. So um, I find when I sit that my toes are flexing on one or both of my feet. Uh, in fact, it happens a lot, but I really notice it when I'm trying to sit in meditative you know, mindfulness or concentration. Um, it seems to be a way that my body is handling some nervousness or some kind of stress, like say about the outcome of a political election that may change the world. Uh, something along that line. And it's certainly not a voluntary thing. I can interrupt it, but I don't choose to be doing it. It's just something that I discover that I'm, I'm doing. I used to, in, in line with what I was describing in, in um, this conversation with, with Christoph, uh, I used to see this as a bad thing and, and really something actually shameful because I know I was supposed to be sitting still, really still, and not letting uh, involuntary activities uh, sweep over me. You know? uh, so I, I, I saw it as something that I shouldn't be doing and something that needed to be kind of exiled. So that's, this is, again, a familiar term from, from internal family systems therapy. And, and in internal family systems therapy, exiling a part of yourself is inevitable in certain, certain circumstances, but never really a, a productive way 
a skillful way to meet your own experience. So I have more recently started just observing the flexing of my toes when it happens. And I, and I try and see where it comes from, where it starts, what part of my body it starts in, what, for, what sort of feeling tone it's associated with, and whether or not it uh, gives me access to thoughts that might be connected with something that could be released by wiggling my toes in this odd way. And I just try and hold it all in equanimity and loving kindness and a sense of, sense of friendship. So what I'd like to ask you to do when I ring the bell is to spend just three minutes sitting upright in silence and seeing you, if you can find contact with a part of your body-mind system that you might normally think of as a hindrance to concentration. Maybe you could first try to concentrate on some higher purified state of consciousness. Then if a distraction comes up, for me it always does, but maybe not for you, but if it does, you might invite that part that is feeling whatever it is that seems like a distraction to sit with you and to thank that part for being what it is, that is, part of life as it is right now. Your life is a messy miracle, as Flint has often said. Our sitting practice gives us a chance to appreciate it, and I offer this experiment as a way to appreciate what might otherwise slip by as uh, something to be ignored or ex even exiled. It's no big deal. It's just an experiment. I'll ring the bell at the end of three minutes, and if you have any perceptions you'd like to share, that would be great, but no pressure. Okay? Thank you for joining me. <clears throat> Pardon me. Thank you for joining me in that experiment. Um, if there's uh, anyone who would like to offer any reflections on that, I would welcome it. If not, we can move to the closing. Anne. Anne Lipscomb raising her hand. Anne. first thing I noticed was questioning because when I 
started the exercise, <coughs> I immediately started thinking about an exalted state of mind. What would that be? What would that feel like? I'm not sure I've ever felt that. How could I get back there? So for me, right away, it was this questioning. I had the same experience. Uh, and I, and it eventually it came, or I, I settled on, oh, it's, it has to do with compassion and connection with others. Did it, did you, did an answer come up for you or did you remain in that questioning state? Well, then it kind of moves into trying to let things come and go and stopping myself when I get in the boat, um, you know, thinking that I was supposed to be doing it a certain way. And was that comfortable, uncomfortable? Did it, did it give you a, a feeling anywhere in your body or, or in the back of your mind? You know, the questioning is very comfortable. But when I notice that I'm crawling over the gums of the boat, um, that's uncomfortable because it's associated with, no, wrong. But the questioning seems very um, engaging. Does, does that feel like a, a, a complete statement of where you were, of what you were wanting to say? Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. I see Darcy has raised her hand. <clears throat> so I had kind of an interesting experience because, uh, so as we started to sit and I was just, taking in the room that I'm in, I'm noticing this tick, tick, tick. Like it was a clock ticking, it sounded like. And my mind was tr trying to figure it out. I don't usually sit in this room. I've really not ever noticed that sound before. And I thought, well, maybe it's something online. And so then I noticed my mind wanting to know. And, you know, all that was okay. But then I, then I could feel myself sort of getting in the boat with <clears throat> obsessing and needing to know, you know, mm -hmm. and recognizing that in myself. And, um, you, you know, your suggestion of befriending rather than pushing it away. So I, then I'm, I'm sitting with this familiar sort of a little bit of obsessive needing to know something, feeling. And um, it, it came up as, okay, it's, it's like a, it's like a, 
a, like a little energy that's um, sort of sparkly and welcoming or something, you know, I, it just, it just transformed and, but it was a lot of work. I just, you know, I kept bringing myself back to rather than getting in the boat with it and trying to figure it out and whatnot, you know, so, but it was a different experience than pushing it away. Mm -hmm. What I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So thank you. Thank you, Darcy. That was, that's a great description of what I was, of what I was trying to say also. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, and by the way, when we finished our three minute period, then I allowed myself to go down that trail, of course. <laughs> there is a clock in this room that yeah, I've okay. never noticed before. <laughs> but not getting in the boat while I was sitting provided a very useful experience. So yeah. thank you. Yeah. On the one hand, you have to not get in the boat. Yes. On the other hand, what I was suggesting was that doesn't mean that you make the distraction bad. You know, yeah. that's, that's what I yeah. that, that was that's what I it seems like you really illustrated there. Yes. Yeah. So thank you for that. <clears throat> that was a new way to sit with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, pardon me if I'm missing something, but I'm not seeing any other requests. So let's go ahead and um, close for today uh, with our, our uh, closing chance. Uh, and I will uh, turn it back over to Kim and, uh, and to lead that.